1: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Legendary Women Detectives, six classic novelettes featuring the world's greatest female super sleuths, edited by Jean-Marie Stein. Introducing Sherlock Holmes' Female Rivals. This unique collection for connoisseurs of detection-done female style brings back six of the greatest fictional women sleuths of the era of gaslights and horseless carriages. Fans of Kinsey Milhone and other contemporary women detectives, as well as of Agatha Christie and Honey West, will love this collection featuring the four mothers of today's fictional female crime fighters. Long out of print and unobtainable, these celebrated women texts Baroness Orzy's Lady Molly of Scotland Yard, Anna Catherine Green's Violet Strange, Arthur B. Reeves' Constance Dunlap, C.L. Perkis's Loveday Brooke, Valentine's Daphne Rain, and Edgar Jepsen and Robert Eustace's Ruth Kelstern, were once nearly as famous as the fictional sleuth of Baker Street himself. Their fame waned in the long decades of the 1930s through the 80s when female sleuths took a backseat to Sam Spade, Nero Wolfe, and the like. But now they are back to baffle and thrill contemporary listeners in The Legendary Women Detectives. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Legendary Women Detectives.
0: The Man in the Inverness Cape by Baroness Auxy. Sleuth, Lady Molly Lady Molly is one of three great detectives created by the legendary author of the Scarlet Pimpernel novels. Her most famous mystery creation is undoubtedly The Old Man in the Corner, but Lady Molly Robertson Kirk runs him a close second and is one of the earliest and most intrepid of woman detectives. Lady Molly joined Scotland Yard to prove the innocence of her husband who had been framed for murder and languished in Dartmoor Prison, and to capture the real killer. Along the way, she solved a number of cases, which stumped the collective male force of the CID. Her investigations were collected as Lady Molly of Scotland Yard, 1910. Well, you know, some say she is the daughter of a duke, others that she was born in the gutter, and that the handle had been soldered onto her name in order to give her style and influence. I could say a lot, but of course my lips are sealed, as the poets say. All through her successful career at the yard, she honoured me with her friendship and confidence, but when she took me in partnership, as it were, she made me promise that I would never breathe a word of her private life, and this I swore on my Bible oath, Wish I May Die, and all the rest of it, Yes, we always called her my lady, from the moment that she was put at the head of our section, and the chief called her Lady Molly in our presence. We of the female department are dreadfully snubbed by the men, though don't tell me that the women have not ten times as much intuition as the blundering and sterner sex. My firm belief is that we shouldn't have half so many undetected crimes if some of the so-called mysteries were put to the test of feminine investigation. Many people say, people too, mind you, who read their daily paper regularly, that it is quite impossible for one to disappear within the confines of the British Isles. At the same time, these wise people invariably admit one great exception to their otherwise unimpeachable theory, and that is the case of Mr. Leonard Marvel, who, as you know, walked out one afternoon from the Scotia Hotel in Cromwell Road and has never been seen or heard of since. Information had originally been given to the police by Mr. Marvel's sister, Olive, a Scotchwoman of the usual accepted type, tall, bony, with sandy-coloured hair, and a somewhat melancholy expression in her blue-grey eyes. Her brother, she said, had gone out on a rather foggy afternoon. I think it was the 3rd of February, just about a year ago his intention had been to go and consult a solicitor in the city, whose address had been given him recently by a friend, about some private business of his own. Mr. Marvel had told his sister that he would be getting on a train at South Kensington Station to Moorgate Station, and walk thence to Fensbury Square. She was to expect him home by dinner time. As he was, however, very regular in his habits, Being fond of spending his evenings at restaurants and music halls, the sister did not feel the least anxious when he did not return home at the appointed time. She had her dinner at the table d'hote room, and went to bed soon after ten. She and her brother occupied two bedrooms and a sitting room on the second floor of the little private hotel. Miss Marvel, moreover, had a maid always with her, as she was somewhat of an invalid. This girl, Rosie Campbell, a nice-looking Scotch lassie, slept on the top floor. It was only on the following morning, when Mr. Leonard did not put in an appearance at breakfast, that Miss Marvel began to feel anxious. According to her own account, she sent Rosie in to see if anything was the matter, and the girl, wide-eyed and not a little frightened, came back with the news that Mr. Marvel was not in his room, and that his bed had not been slept in that night. With characteristic Scottish reserve, Miss Olive said nothing about the matter at the time to anyone, nor did she give information to the police until two days later, when she herself had exhausted every means in her power to discover her brother's whereabouts. She had seen the lawyer, to whose office Leonard Marvel had attended, to go to that afternoon, but Mr Stanton, the solicitor in question, had seen nothing of the missing man. With great dryness, Rosie, the maid, had made inquiries at South Kensington and Moorgate Street stations. At the former, the booking clerk, who knew Mr. Marvel by sight, distinctly remembered selling him a first-class ticket to one of the city stations in the early part of the afternoon. But at Moorgate Street, which is a very busy station, no one recalled seeing a tall, red-haired Scotchman in an Inverness cape. Such was the description given of the missing man. By that time, the fog had become very thick. In the city, traffic was disorganised, and everyone felt fussy, ill-tempered, and self-centred. These, in substance, were the details which Miss Marvel gave to the police on the subject of her brother's strange disappearance. At first, she did not appear very anxious. She seemed to have great faith in Mr Marvel's power to look after himself. Moreover, she declared positively that her brother had neither valuables nor money about his person when he went out that afternoon. But as day succeeded day, and no trace of the missing man had yet been found, matters became more serious, and the search instituted by our fellows at the yard waxed more keen. A description of Mr Leonard Marvel was published in the Leading London and Provincial Dailies. Unfortunately, there was no good photograph him extant, and descriptions were apt to prove vague. Very little was known about the man beyond his disappearance, which had rendered him famous. He and his sister had arrived at the Scotia Hotel about a month previously, and subsequently they were joined by the maid Campbell. Scotch people are far too reserved ever to speak of themselves or their affairs to strangers. Brother and sister spoke very little to anyone at the hotel. They had their meals in their sitting-room, waited on by the maid, who messed with the staff. But in face of the present terrible calamity, Miss Marvel's frigidity relaxed before the police inspector, to whom she gave what information she could about her brother. "'He was like a son to me,' she explained with scarcely restrained tears. we lost our parents early in life, and as we were left very, very badly off, our relations took but little notice of us. My brother is years younger than I. Though he was a little wild and fond of pleasure, he was as good as gold to me, and has supported us both for years by journalistic work. He came to London from Glasgow about a month ago, because Leonard got a very good appointment at the staff of the Daily Post. All this, of course, was soon proved to be true, and although, on minute inquiries being instituted in Glasgow, but little seemed to be known about Mr. Leonard Marvel in that city, there seemed no doubt that he had done some reporting for the courier and that latterly in response to an advertisement he had applied for and obtained regular employment on the daily post the latter enterprising halfpenny journal with characteristic magnanimity made an offer of 50 pound reward to any of its subscribers who gave information which would lead to the discovery of the whereabouts of mr leonard marvel But time went by, and that too remained unclaimed. Lady Molly had not seemed as interested as she usually was in cases of this sort. With strange flippancy, wholly unlike herself, she remarked that one Scotch journalist, more or less in London, did not vastly matter. It was much amused, therefore, one morning about three weeks after the mysterious disappearance of Mr. Leonard Marvel, when Jane, our parlour-maid, brought in a card accompanied by a letter. The card bore the name Miss Olive Marvel. The letter was the usual formula from the chief, asking Lady Molly to have a talk with the lady in question, and to come and see him on the subject after the interview. With a smothered yawn, my dear lady told Jane to show in Miss Marvel. There are two of them, my lady, said Jane as she prepared to obey. Two what? asked Lady Molly with a laugh. Two ladies, I mean. "'Explained Jane. "'Well, show them both into the drawing-room,' "'said Lady Molly impatiently. "'Then, as Jane went off on this errand, "'a very funny thing happened. "'Funny, because, during the entire course "'of my intimate association with my dear lady, "'I had never known her act "'with such marked indifference "'in the face of an obviously interesting case. "'She turned to me and said, "'Mary, you had better see these two women, "'whoever they may be, I feel that they would bore me to distraction. Take note of what they say and let me know. Don't argue, she added with a laugh, which, peremptorily put a stop to my rising protest. But go and interview Miss Marvel and company. Needless to say, I promptly did as I was told, and the next few seconds saw me installed in our little drawing-room, saying polite preliminaries to the two ladies who sat opposite to me. I had no need to ask which of them was Miss Marvel. Tall, ill-dressed in deep black, with a heavy crepe veil over her face, and black cotton gloves, she looked the uncompromising Scotchwoman to the life. In strange contrast to her depressing appearance, there sat beside her an overdressed, much behatted, peroxided young woman, who bore the stamp of the theatrical profession all over her pretty painted face. Miss Marvel, I was glad to note, was not long in plunging into the subject which had brought her here. "'I saw a gentleman at Scotland Yard,' she explained, after a short preamble, "'because Miss, er, uh, Fay came to me at the hotel this very morning with a story which, in my opinion, should have been told to the police directly after my brother's disappearance became known, and not three weeks later.' The emphasis which she laid on the last few words and the stern look with which she regarded the golden-haired young woman beside her, showed the disapproval with which the rigid Scotchwoman viewed any connection with her brother might have had with the lady, whose very name seemed unpleasant to her lips. Miss uh, Lulu Fay blushed even through her rogue and turned a pair of large, liquid eyes imploringly upon me. I, I didn't know I was frightened, she stammered. "'There is no occasion to be frightened now,' retorted Miss Marvel. "'And the sooner you try to be truthful about the whole matter, "'the better it will be for of us." "'And the stern woman's lips closed with a snap, "'as she deliberately turned her back on Miss Fay "'and began turning over the leaves of a magazine, "'which happened to be on a table close to her hand. "'I muttered a few words of encouragement, "'for the little actress looked ready to cry. "'I spoke as kindly as I could, telling her that if, indeed, she could throw some light on Mr. Marvel's present whereabouts, it was her duty to be quite frank on the subject. She hemmed and hawed for a while, and her simpering ways were just beginning to tell on my nerves, when she suddenly started talking very fast. "'I am a principal boy at the Grand,' she explained with great volubility, "'and I knew Mr. Lyndon Marvel well. In fact, uh, he paid me a good deal of attention, and—' Yes, and?' I quiet, for well, the girl was obviously nervous. There was a pause. Miss Fay began to cry. And it seems that my err r- brother took this younger lady to supper on the night of the february third, after which no one has ever seen or heard of him again. Here interposed Miss Marvel quietly. Is that so? I asked. Lulu Fay nodded whilst heavy tears fell upon her clasped hands. "'But why did you not tell this to the police three weeks ago?' I ejaculated, with all the sternness at my command. "'I—I was frightened,' she stammered. "'Frightened of what?' "'I am engaged to Lord Mount Noon, and—' "'And you did not wish him to know that you were accepting the attentions of Mr. Leonard Marvel. Was that it?' "'Well,' I added with involuntary impatience, what happened after you had supper with Mr. Marvel? Oh, I hope, I hope that nothing happened, she said through more tears. We had supper at the Trocadero, and he saw me into my broom. Suddenly, just as I was driving away, I saw Lord Mount Noot standing quite close to us in the crowd. Did the two men know each other? I asked. No, replied Miss Fay. At least, I didn't think so. But when I looked back through the window of my carriage, I saw them standing on the curb, talking to each other for a moment, and then walk off towards Piccadilly Circus together. That is the last I seen of either of em. Continued the little actress with a fresh flood of tears. Lord Mountmorton hasn't spoken to me since, and Mister Marvels disappeared with my money and my diamonds. Your money and your diamonds? I gasped in amazement. Yes, he told me he was a jeweller and that my diamonds wanted resetting. He took them with him that evening, for he said that London jewelers were clumsy thieves, and he would love to do the work for me himself. I also gave him two hundred pounds, which he said he would want for buying the gold and platinum required for the settings, and now he has disappeared, and my diamonds and my money Oh, i have been very, very foolish, and... Her voice broke down completely. Of course, one often hears of the idiocy of girls giving money and jewels unquestioningly to clever adventurers who know how to trade upon their inordinate vanity. There was, therefore, nothing very out of the way in this story just told to me by Miss, er, uh, Lulufay, until the moment when Miss Marvel's quiet voice, with its marked Scotch burr, broke in upon the short silence which had followed the actress's narrative. As I explained to the Chief Detective Inspector at Scotland Yard, she said calmly, the story which this young er lady tells is only partly true. She may have had supper with Mr. Leonard Marvel on the night of February 3rd, and he may have paid her certain attentions, but he never deceived her by telling her that he was a jeweller, nor did he obtain possession of her diamonds and her money through false statements. My brother was the soul of honour and loyalty, If, for some reason, which Miss er, Lulufay chooses to keep secret, he had her jewels and money in his possession on the fatal February 3rd, then I think his disappearance is accounted for. He has been robbed and perhaps murdered. Like a true Scotswoman, she did not give away her tears. But even her harsh voice trembled slightly when she thus bore witness to her brother's honesty and expressed the fears which assailed her as to his fate. Imagine my plight. I could ill-forgive my dear lady for leaving me in this unpleasant position, a sort of peacemaker between two women who evidently hated one another, and each of whom was trying her best to give the other the lie direct. I ventured to ring for our faithful Jane, and to send her with an imploring message to Lady Molly, begging her to come and disentangle the threads of this muddled skein with her clever fingers, Jane returned with a curt note from my dear lady, telling me not to worry about such a silly case, and to bow the two women out of the flat as soon as possible, and then come for a nice walk. I wore my official manner as well as I could, trying not to betray the printer's hand. Of course, the interview lasted a great deal longer, and there was considerably more talk than I can tell you of in a brief narrative. But the gist of it all was just as I've said. Miss Lulu Fay stuck to the point of the story which she had originally told Miss Marvel. It was the latter uncompromising lady who had immediately marched the younger woman off to Scotland Yard in order that she might repeat her tale to the police. I did not wonder that the chief promptly referred them both to Lady Molly. Anyway, I made excellent shorthand notes of the conflicting stories which I heard, and I finally saw, with real relief, the two women walk out of our little front door. Our fellows at the yard were abnormally active. It seemed, on the face of it, impossible that a man, healthy, vigorous, and admittedly sober, could vanish in London between Piccadilly Circus and Cromwell Road, without leaving the slightest trace of himself, or of the valuables said to have been in his possession. Of course, Lord Mount Newt was closely questioned. He was a young guardsman of the usual pattern. And after a great deal of vapid talk, which irritated Detective Inspector Sanders, not a little, he made the following statement. "'I certainly am acquainted with Miss Lulufay. On the night in question I was standing outside the truck, when I saw this young lady at her own carriage window talking to a tall man in an Inverness cape. She had, earlier in the day, refused my invitation to supper, saying that she was not feeling very well and would go home directly after the theatre therefore i felt naturally a little vexed i was just about to hail a cab meaning to go to the club when to my intense astonishment the man in the inverness cape came up to me and asked me if i could tell him the best way to get back to cromwell road and what did you do asked saunders i walked a few steps with him and put him on his way replied lord mount blandly in sonder's own impressive words he thought the story fishy he could not imagine the arm of coincidence being quite so long as to cause these two men who presumably were both in love with the same girl and who had just met at a moment when one of them was obviously suffering pangs of jealousy to hold merely a topographical conversation with one another but it was quite difficult to suppose that the eldest son and marquis of loam should murder a successful rival and then rob him in the streets of london moreover here came the eternal and unanswerable questions if lord mount Newt had murdered leonard marvel where and how had he done it and what had he done with the body i dare say you are wondering by this time why i have said nothing about the maid rosie campbell well plenty of very clever people I mean those who write letters to the papers and give suggestions to every official department in the kingdom, thought that the police ought to keep a very strict eye upon the pretty Scotch lassie. For she was very pretty and had quaint, demure ways, which rendered her singularly attractive, in spite of the fact that for most masculine tastes she would have been considered too tall. Of course, Saunders and Danfers kept an eye on her, you may be sure of that, and got a good deal of information about her from the people at the hotel. Most of it, unfortunately, was irrelevant to the case. She was made attendant to Miss Marvel, who was feeble in health, and who went out but little. Rosie waited on her master and mistress upstairs, carrying their meals to their private room, and doing their bedrooms. The rest of the day she was fairly free, and was quite sociable downstairs with the hotel staff. With regard to her movements and actions on that memorable 3rd of February, Saunders, though he worked very hard, could glean but little useful information. You see, in a hotel of that kind, with an average of 30 to 40 guests at one time, it is extremely difficult to state positively what any one person did or did not do on that particular day. Most people at the Scotia remember that Miss Marvel dined at the Table d'Hotter, room on the 3rd of February. This she did about once a fortnight when her maid had an evening out. The hotel staff also recalled fairly distinctly that Miss Rosie Campbell was not in the steward's room at supper time that evening, but no one could remember definitely when she came in. One of the chambermaids who occupied the bedroom adjoining hers said that she heard her moving about soon after midnight. The hall porter declared that she saw her come in just before half-past twelve, when he closed the doors for the night. But one of the ground-floor valets said that, on the morning of the fourth, he saw Miss Marvel's maid, in hat and coat, slip into the house and upstairs very quickly and quietly, soon after the front doors were opened, namely about seven a.m. Here, of course, was a direct contradiction between the chambermaid and hall-porter on the one side, and the valet on the other whilst Miss Marvel said that Campbell came into her room and made her some tea long before seven o'clock every morning, including that of the fourth. I assure you, our fellows at the yard were ready to tear their hair out by the roots from sheer aggravation at this maze of contradictions, which met them at every turn. The whole thing seemed so simple. There was nothing to it, as it were, with very little and real suggestion of foul play, and yet Mr. Leonard Marvel had disappeared, and no trace of him could be found. Everyone now talked freely of murder. London is a big town, and this would not have been the first instance of a stranger, for Mr. Leonard Marvel was practically a stranger in London, being enticed to a lonely part of the city on a foggy night, and there done away with and robbed, and the body hidden in an out-of-the-way cellar, where it might not be discovered for months to come. But the newspaper reading public is notably fickle, and Mr. Leonard Marvel was soon forgotten by every one save the chief and the batch of our fellows who had charge of the case. Thus I heard through Danvers one night that Rosie Campbell had left Miss Marvel's employ and was living in rooms at Findlater's Terrace near Walham Green. I was alone in our Madey Vale. Flat at the time, and my dear lady having gone to spend the weekend with the dowager, Lady Loam, who was an old friend of hers, nor when she returned did she seem any more interested in Rosie Campbell's movements than she had been hitherto. Yet another month went by, and I for one had absolutely ceased to think of the man in the Inverness Cape, who had so mysteriously and so completely vanished in the very midst of a busy London. When, one morning, early in January, Lady Molly made her appearance in my room, looking more like a landlady, a disreputable gambling-house, than anything else I could imagine. "'What in the world?' I began. "'Yes, I think I looked the part,' she replied, surveying with obvious complacency the extraordinary figure which confronted her in the glass. My dear lady had on a purple cloth coat— and skirt of a peculiarly vivid hue, and of a singular cut, which made her matchless figure look like a sack of potatoes. Her soft brown hair was quite hidden beneath a transformation of that yellow-reddish tint, only to be met with in very cheap dyes. As for her hat, I won't attempt to describe it. It towered above and around her face, which was plentifully covered with brick-red with that kind of powder which causes the cheeks to look a deep marve. My dear lady looked, indeed, perfect picture of appalling vulgarity. "'Where are you going in this elegant attire?' I asked in amazement. "'I've taken rooms in Findler to Terrace,' she replied lightly. "'I feel that the air of Woolham Green will do us both good. "'Our amiable, if somewhat slatternly, landlady— expects us in time for luncheon. You will have to keep rigidly in the background, Mary, all the while we are there. I said that I was bringing an invalid niece with me, and as a preliminary, you may as well tie two or three thick veils around your face. I think I may safely promise that you won't be dull. And we certainly were not dull during our brief stay at 34 Fendlitter Terrace, Walham Green. Fully equipped and arrayed in our extraordinary garments, we duly arrived there, in a rickety four-wheeler, on the top of which were perched two seedy-looking boxes. The landlady was a toothless old creature, who apparently thought washing a quite unnecessary proceeding. In this she was evidently at one with every one of her neighbours. Findler to Terrace looked unspeakably squalid, groups of dirty children congregated in the gutters, and gave forth the discordant shrieks as our cab drove by. Through my thick veils I thought that, some distance down the road, I spied a horsey-looking man in ill-fitted riding-breeches and gaiters, who vaguely reminded me of Danvers. Within half an hour of our installation, and whilst we were eating a tough steak over a doubtful tablecloth, my dear lady told me that she had been waiting a full month until rooms in this particular house opened to be vacant. Fortunately, the population of Binlatter Terrace is always a shifting one, and Lady Molly had kept a sharp eye on Number Thirty Four, where, on the floor above, lived Miss Rosie Campbell. Directly after the last set of lodgers walked out of the ground-floor rooms, we were ready to walk in. My dear lady's manners and customs, whilst living at the above aristocratic dress, were fully in keeping with her appearance—the shrill, rasping voice which she assumed echoed from attic to cellar. One day, I heard her giving vague hints to the landlady that her husband, Mr. Marcus Stone, had had little trouble with the police about a small hotel which he had kept somewhere near Fitzroy Square, and where young gentlemen used to come and play cards of a night. The landlady was also made to understand that the worldly Mr. Stone was now living temporarily at His Majesty's expense whilst Mrs. Stone had to live a somewhat secluded life, away from her fashionable friends. The misfortunes of the pseudo-Miss Stone in no way marred the amiability of Miss Shredwin, our landlady. The inhabitants of Findlay's Terrace care very little about the antecedents of their lodgers, so long as they pay their week's rent in advance, and settle their extras without much murmur. This Lady Molly did, with a generosity characteristic of an ex-lady of means. She never grumbled at the quality of jam and marmalade which we were supposed to have consumed every week, and which anon reached titanic proportions. She tolerated Miss Treadwin's cat, tipped Ermentrude, the tousled lodging-house slavey, lavishly and lent the upstairs lodger her spirit lamp and curling tongs when Miss Rosie Campbell's got out of order. A certain degree of intimacy followed the loan of those curling tongs. Miss Campbell, reserved and demure, greatly sympathised with the lady who was not on the best of terms with the police. I kept steadily in the background. The two ladies did not visit each other's rooms, but they held long and confidential conversations on the landings, and I gathered, presently, that the pseudo-Miss Stone had succeeded in persuading Rosie Campbell that, if the police were watching Number 34, Vindler Terrace, at all, it was undoubtedly on account of the unfortunate Mr. Stone's faithful wife. I found it a little difficult to fathom Lady Molly's intentions. We had been in the house over three weeks, and nothing whatever had happened. Once, I ventured on a discreet query as to whether we were to expect the sudden reappearance of Mr. Leonard Marvel. For, if that's what it's about... I argued, then surely the men from the yard could have kept the house in view, without all this inconvenience and masquerading on our part. But, to this tirade, my dear lady vouchsafed no reply. She and her newly acquired friend were, at this time, deeply interested in the case known as the West End Shop Robberies, which no doubt you recollect, since they occurred such a very little while ago. Ladies who were shopping in the large draper's emporiums during the crowded and busy sale time lost reticules, purses, and valuable parcels without any trace of the clever thief being found. The drapers, during sale time, invariably employed detectives in plain clothes to look after their goods. But in this case it was the customers who were robbed, and the detectives, attentive to every attempt at shoplifting, had had no eyes for the more subtle thief. I had already noticed Miss Rosie Campbell's keen look of excitement when the pseudo Miss Stone discussed these cases with her. I was not a bit surprised, therefore, when one afternoon, at about tea-time, my dear lady came home from her habitual walk, and, at the top of her shrill voice, called out to me in the hall. "'Mary!' Mary, they've got the man from the shop robberies. He's given the silly police the slip this time, but they know who he is now, and I suppose they'll get him presently. Tisn't anybody I know," she added with that harsh, common laugh which she had adopted for her part. I had come out of the room in response to her call, and was standing just outside of our own sitting room door. Miss Treadwin, too, bedraggled and unkempt as usual had sneaked up to the area steps, closely followed by Imrantrude, But, on the half-landing just above us, the trembling figure of Rosie Campbell, with scared white face and dilated eyes, looked on the verge of a sudden fall. Still talking shrilly and volubly, Lady Molly ran up to her, but Miss Campbell met her half-way, and the pseudo-Mrs. Stone, taking vigorous hold of her wrist, dragged her on to her own sitting-room, pull yourself together now she said with rough kindness that oh dredwin is listening and you needn't let her know too much shut the door mary lord bless you my dear i've gone through worse scares than these there you just lie down on this sofa a bit my niece'll make you a cup of tea and i'll go get an evening paper and see what's going on i suppose you're very interested in the shop robbery man or you wouldn't have took on so Without waiting for Campbell's contradiction to the statement, Lady Molly flounced out of the house. Miss Campbell hardly spoke during the next ten minutes that she and I were left alone together. She lay on the couch with her eyes wide open, staring up at the ceiling, evidently still in a great state of fear. I had just got tea ready when Lady Molly came back, and she had an evening paper in her hand, but threw this down on the table directly after she came in. "'I could only get an early edition,' she said breathily. "'And the silly thing hasn't got anything in it about the matter.' She drew near to the sofa, and, subduing the shrillness of her voice, she whispered rapidly, bending down towards Campbell. "'There's a man hanging out at the corner down there. No, no, it's not the police,' she added quickly in response to the girl's sudden start of alarm. "'Trust me, my dear, for knowing a tech when I see one.' Why, I'd smell one half a mile off. No, my opinion is that it's your man, my dear, and that he's in a devil of a hole. Oh, he oughtn't to come here, ejaculated Campbell in great alarm. He'll get me into trouble and do himself no good. He's been a fool, she added with fierceness, wholly unlike her usual demure placidity. Getting himself caught like that. Now I suppose we'll have to hook it if there's time. Can I do anything to help you? asked the pseudo-miss stone you know i've been through all this myself when they were after mr stone or perhaps mary could do something well yes the girl said after a slight pause during which she seemed to be gathering her wits together i'll write a note and you shall take it if you will to a friend of mine a lady who lives in the Cromwell road "'But if you still see a man lurking about at the corner of the street, "'then, just as you pass him, say the word Campbell, "'and if he replies, Rosie, then give him the note. "'Will you do that?' "'Of course I will do that, my dear. "'Just you leave it all to me.' "'And the pseudo Mrs. Stone brought ink and paper "'and placed them on the table. "'Rosie Campbell wrote a brief note, "'and then fastened it down with a bit of sealing-wax "'before she handed it over to Lady Molly. "'The note was addressed to Miss Marvel,' Scotia Hotel, Cromwell Road. You understand, she said eagerly, don't give the note to the man unless he says Rosie, in reply to the word Campbell. All right, all right, said Lady Molly, slipping the note into her reticule. And you go up to your room, Miss Campbell. It's no good giving that old fool Treadwin too much to gossip about. Rosie Campbell went upstairs, and presently my dear lady and I were walking rapidly down the badly lit street. Where is the man? I whispered eagerly as soon as we were out of the earshot of number 34 There is no man replied Lady Molly quickly But the Western shop thief I asked He hasn't been caught yet and won't be either For he is far too clever a scoundrel to fall into an ordinary trap She did not give me time to ask further questions for presently when he had reached reporton Square My dear lady handed me the note written by Campbell, and said, "'Go straight to the Scotia Hotel, and ask for Miss Marvel. Send up the note to her, but don't let her see you, as she knows you by sight. I must see the chief first, and will be with you as soon as possible. Having delivered the note, you must hang about outside as long as you can. Use your wits. She must not leave the hotel before I see her.'" There was no handsome to be got in the elegant quarter of the town. So, after parted from my dear lady, I made for the nearest underground station, and took the train for South Kensington. Thus, it was nearly seven o'clock before I reached the Scotia. In answer to my queries for Miss Marvel, I was told that she was ill in bed and could see no one. I replied that I only had brought a note for her, and would wait for a reply. Acting on my dear lady's instructions, I was as slow in my movements as ever I could be, and was some time in finding the note and handing it to the waiter, and then took it upstairs. Presently he returned with a message. Miss Marvel says there is no answer. Whereupon I asked for a pen and paper at the office, and wrote the following brief note on my own responsibility, using my wits as my dear lady had bidden me to do. Please, madam, I wrote, will you send just a line to Miss Rosie Campbell. She seems very upset and frightened at some news she has had. Once more, the waiter ran upstairs, and returned with a sealed envelope, which I slipped into my reticule. Time was slipping by very slowly, and I did not know how long I should have to wait about outside in the cold, when, to my horror, I heard a hard voice with a marked Scotch accent saying, "'I am going out, waiter, and shan't be back to dinner. Tell them to lay a little cold supper upstairs on my room.' The next moment, Miss Marvel, with her coat, hat, and veil, was descending the stairs. My plight was awkward. I certainly did not think it safe to present myself before the lady. She would undoubtedly recollect my face. Yet I had orders to detain her until the appearance of Lady Molly. Miss Marvel seemed in no hurry. She was putting on her gloves as she came downstairs. In the hall, she gave a few more instructions to the porter, whilst I, in the dark corner in the background, was vaguely planning an assault or an alarm of fire suddenly at the hotel entrance where the porter was obsequiously holding open the door for miss marvel to pass through i saw the latter's figure stiffen and she took one step back as if involuntarily then equally quickly attempted to dart across the threshold in which a group composed of my dear lady of sanders and of two or three people scarcely distinguishable in the gloom beyond had suddenly made its appearance, Miss Marvel was forced to retreat into the hall. Already, I had heard Sanders' hurried whisper words: "Try not to make a fuss in this place now. Everyone can go off quietly, you know." Danvers and Cotton, who I knew well, were already standing one each side of Miss Marvel. Whilst suddenly among this group, I recognized Fanny, the wife of Danvers, who is one of our female searchers at the yard. "'Shall we all go into your room?' suggested Danvers. "'I think that is quite unnecessary,' interposed Lady Molly. "'I feel convinced that Mr. Leonard Marvel will yield to the inevitable quietly, and follow you without giving any trouble.' Marvel, however, did make a bold dash for liberty. As Lady Molly had said previously, he was far too clever to allow himself to be captured easily. But my dear lady had been cleverer. As she told me subsequently, she had from the first suspected that the trio, who lodged at the Scotia Hotel, were really only a duo—namely, Leonard Marvel and his wife, Rosie Campbell. The latter impersonated a maid most of the time. But among these two clever people, the three characters were interchangeable. Of course, there was no Miss Marvel at all Leonard was alternately dressed up as a man or woman, according to the requirements of his villainies. "'As soon as I heard that Miss Marvel was very tall and bony,' said Lady Molly, "'I thought that there might be a possibility of her being merely a man in disguise. Then there was the extraordinarily suggestive fact, but little dealt on by either the police or public, that no one seems ever to have seen brother and sister together, nor was the entire trio ever seen at one in the same time.' On that third of February, Leonard Marvel went out. No doubt he changed his attire in the ladies' waiting room at one of the railway stations. Subsequently, he came home, now dressed as Miss Marvel, and had dinner at the Table d'Hote room, as to set up a fairly plausible alibi. But ultimately, it was his wife, Rosie Campbell, who stayed indoors that night, whilst he, Leonard Marvel, when going out after dinner impersonated the maid until he was clear of the hotel. Then he resumed his male clothes once more, no doubt in the deserted waiting room of some railway station, to meet Miss Lulu Fay at supper, subsequently returning to the hotel in the guise of the maid. "'You see the game of crisscross, don't you?' The interchanging of characters was bound to baffle everyone. Many clever scoundrels have assumed disguises, "'sometimes impersonating members of the opposite sex, "'but never before have I known two people "'to play the part of three. "'Thus endless contradictions followed "'as to the hour when Campbell the maid went out, "'and when she came in. "'For at one time it was she herself "'who was seen by the valet, "'and at another it was Leonard Marvel dressed in her clothes. "'He was also clever enough to accost "'Lord Mount in the open street.' thus bringing further complications into this strange case. After the successful robbery of Miss Fay's diamonds, Leonard Marvel and his wife parted for a while. They were waiting for an opportunity to get across the channel, and there turn their booty into solid cash. Whilst Mrs. Marvel, alias Rosie Campbell, led a retired life in Findlater Terrace, Leonard kept his hand in with West End shop robberies. Then, lady molly entered the lists as usual her scheme was bold and daring she trusted her own intuition and acted accordingly when she brought home the false news that the author of the shop robberies had been spotted by the police rosy campbell's obvious terror confirmed her suspicions the note written by the latter to the so-called miss marvel though it contained nothing in any way incriminating was the crowning certitude that my dear lady was right as usual in all her surmises. And now, Mr. Leonard Marvel will be waiting for two years at the taxpayer's expense. He has disappeared temporarily from the public eye.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Legendary Women Detectives. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.